interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. I'm in the unusual situation of not having much to say to this theme because I don't teach in a secular pluralistic university but in a Christian liberal arts college. And I had to get used to that because I did my graduate work in a secular university. Um, I'm also uh, coming from the tail end of an entire week helping my parents pack their house. They're in their 80s, they're about to move in my brother. So this maybe is a parable for how academic life is intertwined with many other non-academic things. And so my mind is often with, with their packing right now. My journey has shifted from an undergraduate seminary to uh, a graduate program in philosophy to then uh, studies in Old Testament. My interests have spanned particularly Old Testament studies and Christian worldview of late. So what I thought I would do would be a little bit different from what everyone else has done, is I would sort of reflect theologically on uh, a a broader context in which Christian academic life takes place. I want to start with a theme that um, Nick Wallisoff has mentioned a lot, that's worship. And a comment that I usually make about worship to my students from a biblical point of view is this, that worship is nothing unique to human beings in the Bible. Creation, by definition, worships. I think of Psalm 148, which begins, Praise the Lord from the heavens. And then comes a catalog of heavenly creatures who are called to worship God, including angels, heavenly bodies, sun, moon, and stars, the highest heavens, and the waters above the heavens, which assumes sort of an ancient cosmology, which we don't have anymore. And then praise the Lord from the earth, we are told, with a catalog of earthly creatures, including sea monsters, deep oceans, and meteorological phenomena like lightning, hail, snow, and wind, which is said to obey God, mountains, trees, animals, and birds. And finally, in two verses, human beings are also supposed to worship God. It turns out that in all the biblical texts that address the human purpose in the world, none explicitly says worship defines human beings. In fact, the three primary creation texts in the Old Testament about human beings mention specifically something that's not worship. Take, for example, Genesis 2.15. Why is the man put in the garden to work it and protect it? That sounds very mundane, gardening and agriculture. Or take a very beautiful psalm, Psalm 104, which is a creation psalm tracing a whole ecological network of relationships in the world. Each time humans are mentioned in the psalm, they mention human labor, working the ground to bring forth vegetation and oil and wine, that you can have a good time, it says. That's the human purpose. Or take Psalm 8, which says, What are human beings that you're so concerned with us, Lord? Well, you've given us authority over various realms of animal life and land, air, and water, and we're supposed to rule them. Again, a mundane purpose on earth. Genesis 1, which we all know, says that God created us in his image to rule over the animals, to subdue the earth. Which, being an Old Testament scholar, may I tell you, 
that 98% of Old Testament scholars, who of course can't be wrong, um, <clears throat> sure they can be, but on this point are agreed that the Imago Dei, image of God, refers primarily to human beings being God's delegates on earth to rule as he rules. Our rule is of course much more limited than God's. Now, one of the interesting backgrounds to the idea of image of God in the Bible, which I think is relevant to us understanding our task in academia, is that in the ancient world, very few people were called the image of God. Certainly the mass of human beings were not the image of God. We know that in Egypt and Babylonia and Assyria, it was a king and sometimes a priest who was called the image of God because they were the localized manifestation of the God's will on earth. Where the king went, that was God. It's similar to when you went into a temple in the ancient world, and in the furthest recess of the temple, in a chamber at the back, in a private chamber, was the statue of the God, the image of the God. That is how that God was manifest to that society, through that uh, temple, through that image. Human beings are the manifestation of God on earth. We are God's cult statue on earth, much as the ancients thought an image or a king was the mediator. So I want to suggest that the Bible presents us with the notion that while everything in the world worships God, human worship is distinctive because it has to do with working our earthly environment, mediating God's presence as we engage our environment to represent God on earth, to develop as the kings of old did great civic building projects, wisdom literature, whatever cultural projects we develop, it is as God's image on earth. So the Bible turns the ancient picture on its head. It is not just some elite person who has the job of representing God on earth, but all human beings. Israel as a whole was meant to be God's image on earth. They are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. They are like the priest of God in the world. So I want to play a little bit with, I know that the, the Calvinist tradition has often talked about the rule and the delegation of power on earth. I want to play with the priestly notion that we are the mediators of God's presence by our everyday actions in the world. Those everyday actions include, among other things, the arts, whether liturgical or non-liturgical. It includes building organizations and institutions. It includes learning, engaging ideas and concepts, shaping traditions. This is all part of human worship. This is what, in Christ, we have been redeemed to do. So I want to suggest that in a world where false imaging goes on, where humans represent God badly, where humans, in fact, represent false gods in their life and image false gods, in this world of violence and violation and idolatry, human beings remade in God's image, that is Christians, in all walks of life, but also in academia, have a purpose, that is, to worship by their intellectual engagement with the traditions and the institutions that they are placed in. It doesn't always feel like worship, I tell my students, when they are singing a hymn or a praise song in chapel, they feel energetic and energized. Sometimes you just have to plow through the next 20 pages of this boring book and study for the exam and grapple with obtuse concepts, but that also is worship. And I take my cue here from the Apostle Paul, who in Romans 12, 1 and 2 took cultic language of sacrifice from the Old Testament 
and applied it to bodily activity. Present your body as a living sacrifice. That's your acceptable worship. I don't think that the act of the mind is separate from the body. We are embodied thinkers. So I just lay that out for some theological reflections that could contribute to our discussion.